Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Dara here. All right. What? I like that blizzard. It looked good. I mean, you should stay home if you're out state. You don't need to drive. Um, But it just looks so pretty. There was... I looked out the window yesterday, and there was a guy cross-country skiing down my sidewalk, and I thought, I I like it. I want to see more of that. It looks good. Okay, you know what they what else people do on a beautiful day like today? They have a they have a hot toddy and they come in from shoveling. We have a nice, rich, meaty booze show today. We're talking about different kinds of alcohol. I've got Dan Oski here, star tender, one of the greatest bartenders Twin Cities has ever known. He took that knowledge, founded Tattersall, one of the hardest bars to get into on a Saturday at ten o'clock. It's so popular. He has a bunch of new stuff. Later on, I'm going to have Annette Peters from Bourget Import. She's going to talk about the tariff. No, this is not just going to bother French vignerons. It's going to bother a lot of people. So we're going to hear the details on the the crazy 100% wine tariff coming later on. Um, but guess what? Text line is up. I can answer your questions about text 651 989 9226. You want to yell at someone who thinks the snow is pretty? I'm here. I'm waiting for you. I will take that invective and rage. I'll take it and transform it into premium content. All right, Dan Oski, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. All right, star tender, bartender. I'm going to try to make you blush by giving you compliments because that's a Minnesota thing to do. Uh, so, Tattersall, it's going great. It looks like it from where I sit, you're in 26 states. 26 states, yeah, and there will be some more coming online here early on this year, actually. So More states. More states, more travel. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's more than half. I can do that math in my head. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, we got a little ways to go, but we're getting there. A couple of years ago, you were just a bartender at the at a steak place named The Strip Club in St. Paul, just calling you up to find out about these newfangled fancy cocktails, and now look at you. Yeah, it's pretty fun. Yeah. Now you've you got more mileage, more frequent flyer miles, and you know what to do with. That's actually very true. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so you're here today to talk about a couple things. Tattersall uh, expanded inside of itself. Yeah, we expanded. Uh, this is our third time we expanded. So originally we started with 9,000 square feet. We thought that would last us 10 years. Um, after our now third expansion, we are up to 40,000 square feet, and we have added a private event space called the Clover Club. It's really, really beautiful. Clover so, yeah. Club. Yeah. That's nice. It's got a chandelier to rival the chandelier in our cocktail room, too, so it's pretty cool. And you've been able to keep – you have some – you have the elite bartenders. They all came with you and are started at Tattersall, and I've been surprised they have stayed. Yeah, it's – it's uh, we've – yeah, we've kept a lot of our staff, and um, some have moved on to some amazing restaurants, too, as well. And um, we always get some new blood, and we definitely always have uh, some of our mainstays, like Bennett Johnson. So it's it's wonderful. And 
our uh, distilling team is more or less the same too. Um, the team. What's just, your secret? How do you keep them from leaving? Uh, booze, basically, <laughs> just keep them boozed up. Yeah. All right. So you you started this a couple years ago. You're in 26 states. You're like so popular. People love to go to Tattersall. It's fun to go to the place where you can see where the booze is made in the back. Yeah, it's um, we're going on year five now. It'll be five years in uh, July, which it's kind of cool. This time of year is when we started the construction five years ago. So it's it's really kind of fun to look at the pictures and see you know this empty warehouse and what we've done with it. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Um, the cocktail room keeps on doing their thing. The cocktails are as good as they've ever been, if not the best they've ever been. Um, and a lot of people have given up the fight. I notice around town that the keg cocktails are all the rage, which I, I appreciate. You know, that kegged means people are batching them in advance. It speeds things up a lot, but it definitely has sort of, uh, what do I want to say? It's just, they're just not as good. I, you know, I hate to say it. That's going to get me in trouble with people, but they're just not. They're not as special. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's certain things you can do. Like one thing that we do is our our homemade tonic. There would be really no other way to force carbonate that than than putting it in a keg, and so that works really well. That's beautiful. Um, and and we really kind of think of the batching the the keg cocktails more as supplementing what we're doing. So we have about fifty cocktails on our list. Four of those are tap cocktails, and those are things that we want to force carbonate um, so that they're you know effervescent and. Um, there's a lot more you can do on the back end, too, in terms of, like, these, you know, you've got a tonic that has, you know, 12 ingredients in it, and it wouldn't make sense to be able to make that, you know, on the spot. It would take 20 minutes, so no one wants to wait 20 minutes for a drink, so. I know. You do occasionally, but you don't generally. Um, and so, so okay, so things are just keeping on, keeping on. And then you have a couple of new products. You have... A new organic vodka. I did not quite see the magic. Uh, you were so proud of it. So tell people why they should get past my uh, uninformed uh, low energy about this and understand that this is amazing. Yeah, I mean, there's a few things. First, I mean, flavor. Flavor is is really you know the the, the key. Um, so this is uh, organic corn from our head distiller's family farm down in Rochester. Um, the corn is then uh, milled in. Cambridge by our uh, rye farmer, and then it comes to us. We mash, ferment, and distill it, and we distill it six times um, through a 20-plate uh, calm still, so it's really, really neutral. The flavor is as good as it's ever been. It's amazing. Um, on top of that, um, I think that there's a environmental uh, thing to consider and also like the, the support of the farmers. I mean, the, the farmers do a lot better selling their grains to us than to sell it to a grain elevator where their their uh, grains are commoditized, basically. And so they're actually making some money, which is really fun. Um, and then once we are done with it, we are now um, basically drying it out. It runs through infrared uh, treatment and then into a kiln with a company uh, called Net Zero. And we have a uh, packet of pancake mix in front of us Oh, this yeah. Everybody in Radioland, check it out. I am looking at a bag of flour, but it's not just a bag of flour. No. It's I didn't know you could do that because they're called spent grains, very big in brewing. I'll go to a, a you know restaurant sometimes, and they'll have uh, rolls, and they're topped with spent grains. But I kind of thought they were just a garnish because they were spent. I thought this was for show. But no, apparently you can use this flour after all the – Goodness goes into the vodka bottle? Yeah, it's actually um, more nutrient-rich. Um, 
you've uh, kind of condensed it. And on so top you're of like that, soaking it, and then the sugars go out into the water, and the then what's sh- left behind is still good. Correct. So the sugars are are consumed um, by yeast, and so there's still a little bit, but not as much carbohydrate as there would be in traditional flour. Um, and then it is just more uh, condensed, nutrient rich. So basically, the yeast eats the sugar and leaves behind the um, the proteins and the, the other nutrients that um, our bodies want. And so this isn't a flour where you would you know, basically use a whole packet of it. You're going to supplement about 30% of this into whatever you're making. I had cookies made with it the other day. They were insanely, like, uh, they, they retained their chewiness for days. Um, it was really good. So um, we're starting to, uh, some chefs are starting to play around with it, and um, I'm starting to play around with it too at home just because I like to cook and bake. So um, I'm really, really pumped about that. So it's kind of fun to have, like, flour made from your booze. I've been really loving all of these uh, small entrepreneurs such as yourself who kind of tinker at the edges and end up making big changes. I remember talking to, I think it was uh, Bang Brewing that was working with a company that gets their honey from uh, solar collectors. So basically solar collectors and then around them they plant a prairie and they get honey from there and it it subsidizes more uh, green energy. And it's just like, oh, that's a great idea. And those things, they kind of start out – as small test projects, but they really grow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Bang Brewing is, is awesome. Everything that they're doing is really, really cool. Um, and we definitely look up to them. Um, you know, the beer industry, I think it might have been a couple years, obviously, ahead of, of the distilling industry. That said, um, we uh, we do think it's obviously very important to be uh, responsible in our practices and how we make everything and be transparent about how we're doing it too. And so – um, kind of further closing the loop, you know, before our spent grains were going uh, out as uh, 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 pig feed, basically. And now it's um, – and I don't eat a lot of pork. And so now it's like, well, here's something that, that I can actually do and, and use and eat. So, um, yeah, it's really fun. And, um, yeah, just further closing the loop. Um, you know, we're, we're, we pride ourselves on the fact that just about everything that comes into us is either recyclable, um, compostable, or becomes, you know, a uh, – an upcycled product such as this flower. That's super cool. All right, so the last time you and I talked was not on the radio. It was just on the telephone, and we were talking about your Aquavit. So I have a big Aquavit story in Minneapolis-St. Paul magazine right now. It's not online yet, but I'm quite proud of it. I really feel like I got to the bottom of the Aquavit situation in Minnesota. My friends, there are now 17 Akavits in the Twin Cities. I started the story. There were 15. We were in fact-checking. It bumped to 16. Somebody announced a new one. Loon Liquors in Northfield did. Now uh, we're up to 17. Uh, so it's crazy. But yours, your Tattersall Akavit, the, the Danish style, yeah. is probably the biggest one nationally. Like you have stormed the East Coast. Yeah. I mean, it, it certainly helps to have some accolades. We entered that into the San Francisco World Spirits uh, Awards, which is a, a big award ceremony. It's it's uh, international. That's the big leagues. Like, yeah. There's a lot of little rinky-dink festivals. This right. is not the uh, corner store invitational. That's a big one. Yeah. And so our Akavit walked away with uh, double gold and a best in class for the entire category, which is was really cool. Um, honestly, that's not by any means my selling point on it. I, I like... I like to mix cocktails with it. I mean, that's the thing. I've tried all of the Akavits in the Twin Cities. Yours is the mixer one. Like it just got a very uh, subtle, but like sort of very sl- the 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 herbal notes 
are very calm and sort of in the pocket. The whole thing is incredibly smooth, and it just slides into a cocktail like, you know, like smooth jazz in the background. Like, it's just such a great mixer. Yeah. I mean, the the botanicals themselves is, uh, you know, we basically formulated that for a certain flavor profile and something that would be very versatile in any number of drinks. Um, on top of that, we are aging it in our uh, rye barrels. So once we've, you know, dumped our rye and bottled that, then the Akavit ages in there, which actually does lend a little bit of a softness to the rye as it kind of sits in the barrels. So, um, yeah, it's it's really fun product to sell. I mean, people taste it on their own. If they've never had it before, if they taste it on their own, it's either they're in or they're out. Um, but once you start mixing a cocktail with it, they're generally in because they can see how versatile it is, how it actually changes in a glass. I think a lot of times the the big um, hurdle we have to jump is is the fact that there's fennel in there, and American palates oftentimes do not like those licorice flavors. And so if you can kind of marry that licorice flavor with something else, be it, you know, high citrus or pineapple or even something like tomato, because we know, you know, obviously fennel works really well in Italian food. And so, um, yeah, just kind of opening up people's eyes and, and then also taking cues from them, like seeing what are you doing with Akavit, and then we get to uh, we get to learn in kind, which is fun. I find it very amusing. I have not gotten over this fact that if I go to a high-end restaurant, bar, whatever, in Atlanta or Las Vegas, I'm going to be drinking Tattersall Akavit. That's what they have. Yeah, that's and that's that was kind of our furthest out, um, you know, distribution and introducing Akavit there. You're always going to have the high-end bartenders who, you know, they read a lot and they're very well-versed in cocktail culture, um, but getting it in front of kind of that, that next tier and people are like, oh, my customers are not going to care about this. And then you just show them like, well, it, try it in a Bloody Mary. And you kind of see that they kind of you know perk up like, oh, wow, that's that's got more flavor than our regular Bloody Mary. Um, is it for everybody? No. Um, I think that it's been really fun to see it continue to grow. And it's really fun also that, you know, like you said, there's 17 Akavits coming out of the Twin Cities. And so this really is the Akavit epicenter of the nation. And I would put the Twin Cities Akavits up against Scandinavians. I um, think that's what I see. That's what I, is in my story right now is that, uh, you know, if you look at Europe, Europe, what are they up to? They don't have, you know, they don't have the energy, the Aquavit energy that we have now because we are just thrilled about it. And they are just, you know, that's what my grandparents drank about it. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and, and I think it's, it's kind of cool. I mean, for us, it's, it's always nice in Minnesota to have something kind of to call our own. Even though we did not invent Aquavit, we've really embraced it and then just kind of taken it to the next level because there is a lot of flexibility you have in what you put in there in terms of the the blend of herbs, et cetera. And so there's a lot you can do with it. And um, it's definitely, you know, not our grandparents' um, booze anymore. It's really it's it's really kind of become like something that just all Minnesotans can embrace. It's, it's a lot of fun. And it's not your like eighth cousin back in uh, Trondheim's Akavit either. I was talking to a Swedish food historian and he was saying that uh, in Sweden, they think that putting Akavit in cocktails is a very American thing. And they think it's great. They're like, oh, we're an American now. We can, we're like, oh, we're British. We're British people now. You know, we're on the cutting edge. We're putting uh, this, these new Akavits that are better than our grandparents' Akavits in our cocktails. And I will say, if anybody's listening to this, they're like, oh, I'd like to try that on this snowy day. The kind of rule of thumb is that 
you can start to use Akavit almost anywhere gin is. It would just be a little bit different. And then kind of see see where that takes you. And, of course, Tattersall. We're talking to Dan Oski from Tattersall Distilling. Um, you can go to tattersalldistilling.com. He's got a bunch of recipes up there. Real super helpful. We're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back with a couple more minutes with Dan Oski from Tattersall Distilling. Dara Moskowitz Grumdahl here. I am a writer, an award-winning writer for Minneapolis-St. Paul Magazine. One of the things I've been keeping track of my whole life is the booze scene here in the Twin Cities. Talking right now to Dan Oski of Tattersall. Tattersall is kind of the the breakout. The Surly Bill passed in 2011, which allowed people to start paying an excise tax proportional to their production. And from that point on, we've had a distilling revolution in the Twin Cities. And Dan, who is a bartender, he he led it most of all. And, uh, you know, if you're going to put a bet on who's going to win this whole thing, it might be Dan Oski. It might be Tattersall. You got the Martha Stewart seal of approval. It's not a competition. We're just having fun. It is such a competition, and that's fine. Um, <laughs> so you've got some fun new thing. I knew nothing about the word beer schnapps. Yeah, beer schnapps is a um, well traditionally German um, liqueur that you make from uh beer and so we basically uh distill beer and then add, so you like take a whole bunch of beer like a, a giant tank of beer and then you distill it that means you get some of the water out basically. yeah and basically i mean kind of a, a a quick way of thinking about it is if you distill beer without hops you've got whiskey and so and then you throw it in a barrel and let it sit so we took surly darkness many hundreds of gallons surly darkness the cult beer the beer that people camp out overnight the beer that people you know get into weird parking lot deals at 2 in the morning to trade darkness for something from some vermont brewery right and so we took many many hundreds of gallons of darkness and distilled that into whiskey let it sit in a barrel uh, a, a new charred oak barrel for over a year, and then um, it was. And the whiskey was great on its own. But then what we did is we transferred that liquid back into a fresh darkness barrel, so it's a wet barrel with that had the beer in it, and um, lowered the proof and added a little bit of the Belgian sugar. And it's a forty proof, so it's not um, it's not gonna it's not gonna knock you out by any means. It's just something that's really nice to sip on, and it really maintains the uh, the character of the surly darkness. So. Um, so it's Surly Darkness, the cult beer, now flat, concentrated, totally different, yeah. the same. Yeah. And um, there's only 1,200 bottles of it. It's going to be released in a couple of weeks. And I think this is good because I know a lot of people that are always shopping for birthday slash Christmas presents for people that perhaps are Surly Darkness fanatics. So that's it. You're going to be able to get it. You're going to be able to put it in the back of your closet and keep it secret for a while. And then, ta-da, at Christmas, you're going to have one of the only 1,200 bottles. It's great. Right. Yeah, there's not a lot of it, but um, that's kind of part of the fun. So I got mine, people. All right, <laughs> so I, now I got to ask you. So you've been in the, you know, leading this whole thing for a while. What, where, where do you see this going? Is a small distiller market getting saturated? Is uh, people are just going to be making more and more cocktails at home? You did the bootlegger this year. That is a basically a cocktail in a bottle. That seemed very uh, popular. People were crazy about it. Yeah, that was fun. Um, so we'll do that again this year. I mean, we we never stopped. It's it's still available. Um, obviously, we sell a lot more in the summertime because it's you know citrus and minty and really refreshing. Um, and then we did the old fashioned right before um, Christmas, basically, and that was a ton of fun. 
Um, and then, you know, the future right now, we are making a ton of whiskey. That's kind of our, our um, I think most people don't know that when they come into the distillery because we've got, you know, 25 products. Um, and we've got, I'd say, 60% of our production right now is just whiskey. Um, what's really fun is we've been making it for a long time. We've just been kind of quiet about it. And then this summer, um, probably around August or so, um, and it'll be limited to a point, um, we will be launching our four-year bourbon. Um, and so we've got Oh, two. so is this the year that Minnesota bourbon finally breaks out? It's just been sitting in the warehouses, aging? Yeah, so we have a high-rye bourbon that will launch, and then we've got a weeded bourbon that'll also be four years um, and I don't know if we're going to launch that yet. I, I mean, we haven't really decided. It's like, you know, I, I could tease you and dangle that, but um, I I'm, I think we might let it go longer. So, um, and it's great. It's As we, well you should. The last yeah. thing you want to do is kill the category or the brand right. by having a – there's a distillery I could mention that, that I think uh, really did Minnesota whiskey a disservice by launching a white whiskey that tasted like rot gut and then everybody said, oh, Minnesota whiskey, that's rot gut. Yeah. Uh, if you want to taste our bourbon, um, they actually do have it on you know in the back bar at Tattersall. And so, I mean, it is available. So that, that – uh, it'll always be – they'll be mixing cocktails with it. We just might not distribute it. Um, which means that we can't sell the little mini bottles either. But um, and so it's the the really the only place you could taste the the weeded bourbon, I should say, is going to be at the cocktail room um, for the foreseeable future, and then we'll make a decision. But later on in the summer, we will see our four year high rye bourbon, which is really exciting. And then of course we're just laying down tons of rye, and we've even made some uh, malt whiskeys that we're just sitting on. Um, uh, we've distilled Kernza, which is a, a a grain that's a ancient grain. The perennial ancient yeah, grain. Yeah, we yeah. love Kernza around here. That's the we're gonna see if we can grow wheat without plowing. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it grows for five years, so it's uh, it's pretty wild. Um, I think we're one of two distilleries. At least last time I checked, one of two distilleries um, in the world that have distilled Kernza. So it kind of has this almost like rye meets wild rice flavor. It's it's pretty cool. Um, and I actually that's one of the things I love about Minnesota is that we're able to do those things. Mm-hmm. You know. You know, the the guy, the Kernza scientists are able to actually go meet the because Bang Brewing, who we were talking about before, they did a beer with it, and so you're actually able to, as a plant scientist, to go and meet people and get your products in the world and kind of do some proof of concept. Yeah, and and it's really unique. I mean, I think Minnesota is unique because this time of year, it's cold outside, and I think it's a it's really part of the reason why we're so innovative up here is because. There's not that much you can do outside. I mean, you can go, you know, cross-country skiing or what have you, but eventually you're going to get cold and you're going to want to go inside and uh, to keep yourself from getting bored, you're going to want to innovate. And that's really kind of the time of the year for us to innovate is, is right now, and it's it's a ton of fun. So It is. We excel in all indoor sports. And my work as a writer for Minneapolis St. Paul Magazine, anytime I'm just like anything that you can think of, is the leading, you know, are the leading like miniaturist painters, board game inventors, like any crossword writers, you know, anything that's an inside thing, we're always rocking it. And of course, goes to the whiskey and the and the important organic vodka that has just launched. All right. Dan Oski, thank you for coming in today and braving the blizzard and yeah. driving in. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. If you could see us in the studio right now. Dan Oski and I are basically dressed as twins. We both have gray sweatshirts. We both have jeans on. It's a very Minnesota morning. All right, we're going to take a break here. We're going to come back. I'm going to have Annette 
Peters from Bourget Imports will talk about this coming wine tariff. There here. All right. Um, we're going to be talking to Annette Peters here about what's going on in the world of wine tariffs. I got a nice text. Thank you for having a cocktail-related guest on today. Whoever came up with the idea of dry January was not thinking straight. My friend, I cannot agree with you more. I think the whole, all the social media posting of a dry January kind of drives me crazy. Like all kinds of things I'm not doing this month. I don't put them on social media. I'm sitting there going, I'm not swimming this month. I haven't had a waffle this month. Just, you want to, you know, I don't drink all kinds of days during the week. Uh, most of them. But do I make a big fuss about it? That's why I had to leave New York and come to Minnesota because the don't make a big fuss about it very speaks to me. I understand that. All right. But I do think you should make a big fuss about things when bad things are happening. These wine tariffs, you guys, I know there's so much news going on, but we really need to find out what is going on. You may think, oh, wine tariffs are something that is being done to the bad people of France. Not so. Annette Peters joins us. She is the head of Bourget Imports, one of the smartest people I know. Flew to Washington, D.C. to testify about this, but she's a nationally uh, important expert. Annette, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Dara. Happy to be here and happy to be talking about this issue. Okay, so first off, just what is the issue? Well, there are basically uh, two disputes going on. Um, one of them involves a uh, the digital service tax, which is, uh, a tax that's been levied on things like Google, Amazon, Facebook. Uh, okay, so the France. people that are destroying our democracy, Google, Amazon, <laughs> Facebook, uh, um, France is putting a tax on them so that they can help support the economy that they take so much money out of. Go on. Yeah, it's a 3% tax. Um, but what they did is they came back and proposed, and this hasn't been ruled on yet, is a 100% tax on sparkling wine in the United States. All right, so, so that's to, one tariff. So wait, so to then, retaliate against taxing Facebook in France, uh, the United States government has proposed a 100% tariff on French wines. Well, that's one of the tariffs. And yes, uh, sparkling wine in particular, um, along with handbags and cheese and other other luxury, uh, your Le Creuset cookware also. Um, and then there's another tariff, which was actually imposed already, and you may already start to see the results of that. And that was a, uh, the World Trade Organization um, ruling uh, that was the Boeing and Airbus dispute. And they've already imposed that tariff. That was imposed in October of last year. And uh, we had very little notification in the industry. So basically no opportunity to, say, scramble the jets and get products shipped into the United States. And many people had wine come through the ports uh, last fall, and that tariff was imposed immediately. And, you know, it's important to... Okay, so wait, so let me just, let me, let me see if I'm understanding. So in October, a kind of surprise set of wine tariffs popped up, and we're paying for those? Is that happening right now? You're, the way the supply, the supply chain works, you're, you're going to start seeing those prices just now. Um, a lot of the importers and distributors, such as myself, we basically, we, we already negotiated our prices, made our deals with our customers for the holiday season. So we didn't raise our prices in the last quarter of the year. We basically ate that, that tariff. 
So all of his companies are already reeling from having to absorb that cost through the final quarter of the year. And now, of course, you're going to start to see some of those those increases coming coming along. And that's just the 25% tariff. Okay, so the 25% now, tariff is already in place. It's yes. already working its way through the distributors, the wine importers, mm-hmm. you know, and us consumers, we're going to start seeing that now. And there's an, yes. a, more. There's that, that's not even close to the end of it. Well, there's another decision being made. What happens is there, there's a, a cycle where they review these tariffs, and that's called carouseling, where they actually exchange the products on the tariff list, and that's coming up in February. And there's a proposal to raise the tariff to 100%. Now, that's a real game changer. We've all negotiated and we've um, made arrangements with our suppliers. We have, you know, these are sometimes small farmers in in Europe that are working with us um, to help combat this this tariff. Um, So, there's very slight price increases coming along right now, but the 100% tariff is going to make, be a big game changer. It'll not only affect, you know, not only effectively double the price of your wine, it may mean many wines go away. Okay, and so a lot of people maybe don't quite understand how tariffs work. It sounds mm-hmm. like, you know, something that uh, has to do with foreigners and trade, and maybe it's their problem. But what it is is that if you're importing something that's worth Ten bucks, and there's a you know twenty five percent tariff on it. The person who's paying for it is mm-hmm. you, Annette, the importer. You pay the the two fifty on that ten dollar thing. You're paying twelve fifty for it now. Yes, yep, that's exactly right. And in fact, it doesn't even hurt. You know, if if the object is to say hurt French wine producers, many of them already have so much global demand for their wines that they're just going to simply shift their their product sales to say, China, where there's huge demand. There's a growing wine thirst in China, and it's possible that they'll just shift those allocations over to another country. That wine may never return to the United States again. And and importers such as yourself, uh, you obviously, I'd say it, go under. And then um, there's just tens of thousands of jobs that are involved in, in that wine trade. I know dozens of those people. Absolutely. Um, right now, just the 25% tariff, they estimate, makes up about 20% of fine dining revenue. So, I mean, imagine if it was 100%. I mean, you have specialized restaurants that wouldn't be able to sell those wines anymore. Um, you know, can you imagine going into, say, a French restaurant or an Italian restaurant and being offered, you know, a wine from, I mean, there's nothing wrong with California wine, but if that's your specialization or if you're being offered a Chilean wine because, you know, there's some price points that are very good there. and But not not being able to buy those wines, um, importers like me, um, 100% is just, um, and excuse the, the pun here, unpalatable to consumers. Um, it's just, uh, it's impossible. And so what will happen is some of these supplies will dry up. And you're right, there will be a, a domino effect um, when companies, wholesale companies, and importers start laying off people, you know, that includes warehouse workers and truck drivers and advertising people. And I mean, and then there's the trickle down into restaurants and retail as well. So this is a, this is a huge thing. And, 
They, uh, the, the numbers right now with the 25% tariff, they estimate probably about 12,000 jobs have been lost. But we're talking about the effect on 88,000 jobs if this next tariff passes. Right. And then people are thinking like, oh, well, this is just, you know, this is a small part. These are a bunch of people. I don't care about them. We could just drink wine from California. These trade wars do not, uh, there is no end in sight. You know, the next thing that's going to happen is uh, the EU is passing a free trade agreement with Brazil. Then all of a sudden, you know, Brazil's wine economy is going to boom and they're going, you know, we could have tariffs on American wines going into Europe. And the whole thing is just, uh, you know, of no benefit to anyone. That's true. And, you know, the other idea, I mean, I'm certainly I, I also sell wines that are made domestically. I sell California wines, Oregon wines. We're the distributor for those wines as well. So imagine if we go away, the supply chain for those specialty producers also goes away. So you're you're gonna you're gonna limit the scope of wines available in the market overall with this, and also, even if California stopped exporting all of its wines and only sold its wines in the USA, there still wouldn't be enough wine to make up for the deficit from imports. You know, currently it's about 25% of the of all wine sales in, in the United States, and there's just simply not enough wine made in America to make those numbers up. And it takes time to make wine. You have to plant vineyards. Um, you have to wait for those vines to be mature enough to actually produce wine um, that can go in the bottle. Yeah, and there's a reason why a lot of the great cheap wines, everybody who's a kind of penny pincher, there's a reason that a lot of the great cheap wines of the world come from places like Portugal and Spain and France because those are – the birthplaces of wine, and they that's where wine really wants to live. It can live without irrigation. It can live <laughs> with you well, know, very low input. And so if we can't get our hands on, you know, these, these great bottom shelf, uh, sustainably produced, historic, ancestral, et cetera, et cetera, wines, that is to no one's advantage. Yeah, there are many wines that just don't have a substitute. I mean, you know, you take uh, Prosecco, for example, you know, um, a little 12.99 sparkler from Italy. Um, there really isn't a substitute for that flavor profile or that price point from anywhere else in the world. And this is true for so many of the wines. Uh, it's like saying to somebody who, who likes country music, hey, we don't have country music for you, but we've got a, a nice bit of... Uh, you know, Bach and Beethoven for you to listen to here all the time. Yeah. All right. So tell me how it was in, and I like that analogy a lot, by the way. That's a good one. Um, tell me how it was in D.C. <laughs> you went out there. Did Were people amenable to hearing from you? They they were. I mean, well, I'll tell you, it was, it was interesting to address the, um, the whole committee, um, the, the, the trade, the trade uh, representative committee. Um, we really had to give them um, a primer on how the wine business works. Um, there's, it's a very complicated business that involves a three-tier system. It involves state regulations that we deal with, as well as federal regulations. And, um, and every state is different. So it means that the price of wine and how we work is different in each state as well. So that was one part of it. There was... Uh, testimony from companies of all sizes in the business 
and including some very emotional testimony um, from small importers. Uh, they're going to be very much affected by this. And um, you have family businesses that um, are going to struggle to stay, stay afloat with these tariffs. And, and you did find a, a local politician who would listen to your, listen to your side of things. Well, one of the interesting things that happened is a, uh, a group of people from the industry formed a very grassroots kind of uh, coalition that has been active for the last few weeks on Capitol Hill. And these are not lobbyists or lawyers. They're, they're importers and people that work in the industry just like me. And they have been amazing. And um, Save, Save Wine Jobs uh, is, is the name of the group. And um, okay, so say, wine save jobs. wine jobs, yeah. and people want to find out more about this. Where can we save find U.S. wine jobs? And um, there's actually a GoFundMe for the group. Um, and uh, there's a, a gentleman by the name of Harry Root who is at the core of this, and he has really put together an amazing movement of people in Washington that are talking to um, our politicians about this and some. Really significant uh, pieces of information and letters have been passed up to Robert Lighthizer, um, who he's the head of he's the the U.S. Trade Representative. And then Angie Craig got involved. Angie Craig is was part of the committee um, for small business, and she was a signer on one of the letters that went to Robert Lighthizer opposing these tariffs. Oh, that's uh, great. Yeah, I'm very appreciative for her actions. Um, and so it's Save U.S. Wine Jobs. Uh, and I think that people just are so much news. We have been had so much news in the last two years. I don't think people are prepared for more news. But <laughs> this is this is something that is coming, and it is not going to be good for the Twin Cities. It is not going to be good for restaurant world in general and for the you know 80,000 people that – um, are involved in importing wine in this country. And so I really appreciate you uh, raising up your voice in all of this. I have found this difficult to track with all of the national news that's happening. Um, I kind of lost track of this one, but this is huge. This is a huge thing. And I think it's, um, you know, also wine got caught in the very long list of things being tariffed. I mean, there are all kinds of food products, um, even, you know, some uh textiles and things like that also being tariffed, but definitely an impact on the hospitality industry in a way that's um, almost, uh, this is, some people are calling this maybe the most um, significant uh, effect on the wine business since prohibition. Oh, dude, you should lead with that. That is extremely, (laughs) that's important. All right. I'm not the first person to say that. So, all right. well, yes. and there are many people um, like me working very hard to to turn this around. All right. I really appreciate you uh, taking time out of your shoveling this morning to let us know about this. <laughs> um, Annette Peters from Bourget Imports talking to us about what's going on with Save U.S. Wine Jobs and the biggest Biggest thing to happen to American wine since Prohibition. That was a big deal. I do not like the sound of these tariffs. I do not want to pay for them, and I do not think this is a good way to uh, run the economy. (laughs) Everybody has a voice, Dara. They need to call their representatives and tell them that they are against these tariffs. Okay. Annette, thank you you so much. (laughs)
All right, we're take it a little. It was my pleasure. Oh, thank you. We're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back with a little ask me anything. You got questions? You can, uh, you know, you can always text us. We are here six five one nine eight nine nine two two six. Dara here. All right, I got a nice text. Thanks for explaining the wine tariffs. It is helping me get a picture with these farm tariffs too. I know those farm tariffs have been just ongoing. They really don't seem to be helping anybody. They really seem to just be causing upheaval. I I have a fear. I'll just put my fears out there in the world that all this is going to end up benefiting Brazil in the end. In the end, there's going to be a um, we'll get there. Cut down the rainforest, grow soybeans on it, and sell them all to China, and we'll have been left in the dust. How's that for f- ca- ca- catastrophizing? Is that because I'm a negative person? That's what I'm afraid of. Um, okay, somebody has texted in, as bad as a wine tariff issue is, it will be that good for the United States wine industry, and that means jobs, and that means more money to invest in the U.S. Uh, no. <laughs> First of all, most of the people that actually work harvesting in the United States wine industry come from south of the border. They're the the actual migrant farm workers. So let's talk about that. Wine land is insanely expensive. Um, you know, you can get wine out of the Central Valley, uh, but you can't get wine. You know, there's there's basically no more land, and that's where all the fires are happening. So. Uh, and it takes years. If you want to plant vineyards, I mean, talk to anyone who's even done it in Minnesota. That's a five-year lead. So you're talking about, you know, are you, are you going to buy the most expensive land there is, which is vineyard land? You're going to, you know, dig it all up. You're going to plant all the all the vines that go in there, you're going to wait five years. Then you're going to start to learn how to make wine on that land. Are you going to do that all with the belief that these tariffs are going to be here in five years? Absolutely not. So uh, I just don't think it's going to happen like that. Um, I, <laughs> ah, I get in some questions uh, from the text line. Um, whether the Uptick in the hard liquor business. Oh, look, this is from Pilar, whose book launch I did, and that was so fun. Um, Pilar's book is out, you guys, The the Healthy Deviant. She wants to know if I think the uptick in hard liquor is driven in part by people seeking gluten-free, low-carb, sulfite-free options to wine and beer. Uh, She says, I know a lot of us folks who have switched to spirits as a way of accommodating avoidance of such things. I wouldn't be surprised. I think that people are – I think we're really just coming out of prohibition now in some ways. I think that there were just a lot of not that great spirits before the the kind of craft distilling revolution came around. Um, And now people are discovering that if you have a really good spirit, you don't need much of it and you don't need to hide it in you know with a lot of sugars and things so i think we really it's weird but it took that long to come back out of prohibition because after prohibition only the very very well monetized players were able to get back in so that was the era of the the big big brands and that really only changed about 15 years ago that's my take on it all right um i got a question about the future of the show i 
<laughs> uh, do we get to keep you from now on or what? I hope so. Well, thank you. You know, we're trying to figure out. I think you get me for a while, but whether I'm on food or beer, I do not know. It was fun to have a booze show with you all. So I hope you all uh, shovel out, and I will meet you here next week on Off the Menu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.